This evening we are carrying on our series in the book of James and as Holly said, I'm finishing it off but I'm also not because it's carrying on for another two months. But we are looking at the end of James tonight, so that just makes so much sense, doesn't it? It's not confusing in any way. Now, over the course of January, we've been considering what we can learn from James here about how to follow Jesus, which is one of our core values as a church. What are the markers of someone whose life is moving constantly towards Christ and in rhythm with Christ? And Andy spoke about the invitation to perseverance in our first week um, a couple of weeks ago. And last week, Don continued by talking about the invitation that we have to humility as a marker of a life that's held in Christ. And this week, I'm going to talk about an invitation to prayer. And as we said, we're not reading James chronologically, but it's okay. There's only five chapters, so you can definitely keep up. We're moving around a little bit. Today, we're going to be in James chapter 5, verses 13 to 20, and I'm going to read that to us now. Are any among you suffering? They should pray. Are any cheerful? They should sing songs of praise. Are any among you sick? They should call for the elders of the church and have them pray over them, anointing them with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise them up, and anyone who has committed sins will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sin to one another, and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human being like us, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth yielded its harvest. My brothers and sisters, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and is brought back by another, you should know that whoever brings back a sinner from wandering will save the sinner's soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Holy Spirit, we invite you to be present among us. This is your word, and we ask you to come and bring it alive between us as we grapple with this this evening. Amen. James is a pretty challenging book. I don't know if you've picked that up yet. You're going to hear that a lot. It's really, really direct, you know? It's almost a little bit uncomfortable whenever you read it. There are just no caveats here at all. We can read this, maybe you read this and you're like a little bit offended by it because you're like, well, that's just a little bit too on the straight and narrow or you're a little dismissive of it based on how much of your own experience you don't find represented among it. We read it and we say like, okay, I see what you're saying, but that sounds a little simplistic. Like, I've prayed for someone who was sick and they didn't get healed. I'm suffering and prayer is really not making a massive difference right now. You make it sound pretty black and white, but my experience and my reality is a lot more gray. I'd really prefer it if you expanded a little bit, James, and allowed room for some different experiences. Anyone else? Just me? When you read something in the Bible that uh, challenges you, um, praise God, that's a really good thing. Um, When you read something that you don't really like or you don't get, my uh, advice to you would be, which you can take or leave, but my advice to you would be don't walk away because some of the most profound understanding that I have come to with the Bible, which I love dearly, and which I wrestle with almost every time I pick it up, it's not been over the passages that I love. They're easy to read. It's over the passages that I don't really like, that make me cross, 
And the reason that I have come to those understandings is because I've stayed and I've said, okay, God, I don't like it, I don't get it, but it's here. Show me what I do not know. Show me what I do not know. And when you read that passage in James, he doesn't really say anything that's massively controversial, does he? I mean, we've heard it all before. It's not controversial stuff. It's just his tone, right? That directness can be quite jarring to us. Well, we're not walking away. I mean, you're, you're free to leave if you want. Please don't. That would be awkward. But we're not walking away. What can we learn here from James about this thing that we talk about lots as Christians, about prayer? The question when I, that I have whenever I've read this passage has been, what kind of prayer are you talking about, James? What kind of prayer? And so I'm going to pick out three types of prayer that I think that we see here and we're going to consider them together. The first one is prayer in all circumstances. Verses 13 to 14 of this passage. Are you suffering? Pray. Are you joyful? Praise. Are you sick? Get others to pray for you. Pray in all circumstances. This is not the only time in the Bible that we're pointed towards this action. Ephesians 6, 18 says, pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. Philippians 4, verse 6, don't worry about anything, but pray about everything. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 to 17, rejoice always, pray continually. Again and again and again across the Bible, from different writers, we're told, pray in all circumstances, pray whenever you can, pray about everything. Whatever you do, pray. Maybe you find prayer to be a little bit of a guilt-inducing thing, like, I didn't pray about that thing and maybe I should have, maybe that would have made a difference. Or I didn't pray enough or my prayers maybe weren't good enough. I really messed that up. I didn't say the right thing. Or maybe you're sitting there being like, it's been ages since I've actually prayed off my own bat and I really hope that nobody asks me about that. The thought of praying in all circumstances can seem a little bit far-fetched if you're barely managing to pray in any circumstance, right? Or maybe we can go the other direction and think if we just can squeeze in enough prayer, then God will be pleased with us. We went to that prayer thing and we got up extra early to pray and we keep a prayer journal and none of those things are bad. I go to all our prayer things. Please join me there. I'm always there. It's just that we can run the risk of equating how much we do with how much God might be pleased with us and as a result, what he might then do for us. And so this unconditional love that we are meant to bask in suddenly becomes just a little bit conditional. Now James is a book of action. You can't escape it. It's a book of works. It's a book of what we do because what we do matters. But when it comes to the things that we do, prayer included, I think it's our motivation towards this thing that really matters the most. So what motivates you to pray? What motivates you to pray? What has your experience of prayer been like? What have the really good times of prayer been like? 
what have the barren times of prayer been like? I truly believe that when we're called to pray in all circumstances, it's not a tick box exercise, but rather it is just another way that God wants us to know his deep involvement in our lives and his deep compassion for us. Because prayer is above all else, the place where you meet with God where we are invited to be with him in our desperate moments, with our deepest pleas, and in our moments of joyful thanks. It is where we get to be with God. In our prayer room downstairs as you come into the building, I don't know if you've been there or if you were there before it was renovated, it was flooded, which was honestly the biggest blessing from God because then it got a complete renovation, which was awesome. So praise God for a flood, please let it never happen again. In, before it was uh, renovated, it looked um, just quite something. And someone who I love dearly took the liberty one time of writing Jesus' name just all over the walls. All over the walls. I mean, like, when I say everywhere, I mean everywhere. Honestly, it must have taken forever. And it took me a while to figure out who it was. And then when I ended up having a wee chat with them about how that had come to be, um, it feels relevant for this moment. Um, she said, I was just in there praying. And Jesus told me that he wanted to be everywhere. So she wrote his name all over the walls, which is awesome. In the highest highs and in your moments of deepest distress, in the boring, in the mundane, when you are somewhere that you've been a thousand times before, in those relentless moments where you feel, is it ever going to end? Jesus wants to be everywhere. He wants to be everywhere. How could that thought shape your approach to prayer right now? And what happens to us when we don't embrace that? When I think about this in my own life, yes, there are moments and rhythms of, of deep prayer where that's the only thing that I'm doing. But when I think about the things that truly shape me and form me to be more like Christ, it's not those moments. They're really good, I'm glad I do them, but it's not those moments. It's the little things that I say to God whenever I walk the same road into this building several times a week. It's the prayers I pray whenever I'm knackered or I'm overwhelmed or I don't want to get up and it's early and I ask just for help. It's the prayers I pray when I really want to be there for a friend but I have no idea how. It's way less about the words that I use. And rather, it is more about tending to my desire for God and my motivation to talk to him. Pete Gregg, who founded the 24-7 prayer movement, he says, I'm sure if you've read any of his stuff, you've maybe read this. He says, I don't believe in the power of prayer. I believe in the power of God. And so I talk to him. That's a pretty important flip, isn't it? I don't believe in the power of prayer. Neither do I, Pete. I believe in the power of God, so I talk to him. What motivates you to pray? What circumstances do you turn to prayer in? And what ones do you not turn to prayer in? 
What could change there? Pray in all circumstances. The next type of prayer that we encounter here is in verse 15, prayer of faith. The prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise them up and anyone who has committed sins will be forgiven. This is powerful stuff, right? It's important, I think, to always consider the context that we read, that we're reading the Bible in. So this was like early-ish church days, and this is a church under occupation, threatened of imprisonment, and actually in those days, the majority of Christians thought that Jesus was going to be coming back like imminently, really, really soon, and so that really changed the way they lived their lives, and it changed their expectation. Cut then to 21st century Edinburgh, where we're laid down with all sorts of responsibilities, we're in a Western society, and the church has been institutionalized for centuries, and we're for the most part relatively comfortable. And thinking both within and out of the church has changed loads and probably will continue to. What does praying with faith look like here? What does expectant prayer look like here? Because it's still the same God that we're praying to. That hasn't changed. But our circumstances and our environments have changed dramatically. We would be remiss not to acknowledge that. I want to tell you another story, and I think I've maybe told this to some of you before, so forgive me if I have, but when I think about praying with expectation, I think this is one of the best ones I've got. So I live over in Polworth, and I work a couple of days a week in Glasgow, and when I used to get the train there, I would walk, uh, I would barrel, actually, down Dalry Road a couple of times a week, down to Haymarket to get the train. It takes 12 minutes from my house. I'm a very fast walker, and I maximize my time. Do not get in my way. Twice a week, I would barrel past this shop and I barely paid attention to it, but eventually I began to notice what was in the window. And I saw just really some books that I didn't really think were that good. A lot of them were to do with like Wicca and the occult and there was just a lot of stuff in there that was like eventually, yeah, I don't, I don't like that. And I don't think that's that good for this area. And I don't think, take it down, spoilers. <laughs> just ram a story. Anyway, God did an amazing thing. So I began to pray um, no, basically, to what was in that shop. And I'm talking like it it probably took me about two seconds to walk past that shop. So it was a two-second prayer of at like 6.30 in the morning of no and Jesus. Those are probably about the only two words that I prayed. So I did this like for about two years when I remembered and one day I barreled past this shop and I was getting ready to say my prayer and um, I stopped because it was closed and that shop was never closed, like it was open all the time and I thought maybe it's a holiday or I don't know, maybe just a one-off and the next time I went past it was still closed and the next time I went past it was still closed and then eventually post began to pile up and I was like, Jesus, did you close the shop? Like, did you listen to that little no and Jesus prayer that I prayed at 6, 6.30 in the morning on the way to the train? Does that mean you care about the spiritual atmosphere of Dalry Road? Okay, I think maybe you do. I'm on board with that. And so my expectation, which previously had been like probably not very full of belief at all I was just doing what like you think Christians should do 
It began to rise a little, and it, it was like I began to conspire with Jesus. My prayer changed, and I began to pray that something good would come there, that it wouldn't just lie empty, but that it would become like a, a local business would take it over, or a gathering place, something that lined up a little bit more with what I, I think God is like. And gradually things began to happen in that shop and eventually it turned out, cue the photo, that 12 Triangles, this wonderful Edinburgh bakery had got it and we're opening up a coffee shop there and I was like, local business, tick, gathering place, tick, Jesus likes sourdough and cinnamon rolls and really good coffee, like this is, what more reason do you need to follow him? Do I think that my prayers suddenly made God pay attention to a little corner of Dalry Road and think, oh, I hadn't noticed what was going on there. I really should begin to pay attention to these things. No, of course I don't think that. He was already there. He was already at work. But my little prayers of faltering and then delighted expectation meant that I got to join in. And it grew something in me that I can call to mind whenever my expectation in prayer is low. So where is your expectation lagging in prayer? Do you feel the weight of that? The anger of that maybe? It can be a scary thing to get your hopes up in prayer sometimes. It can be very brave. We've called this sermon a, an invitation to prayer and perhaps that's what you need to hear again. To be invited into the space where even when you cannot see it and years go by and nothing seems to change and you wonder if any of those words that you're trying to get out are making any difference at all. You're invited to come and stand with Jesus, the very, very faithful one, who is carefully tending, who is paying attention, who is not distracted and who is not ignoring the things that matter to you. He's just working at his own pace. And he will do things, but in his time. So where have you seen God at work? If you don't see it right now, where have you seen it before? Call those things to mind. There's a book in the Old Testament called Lamentations. And as you would imagine, it's a lament, a great big long lament. And I want to read a section from it, um, from chapter three, starting at verse 17. I wonder, can you relate to this? I have been deprived of peace. I have forgotten what prosperity is. And so I say, my splendor is gone and all that I had hoped from the Lord. I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I well remember them. And my soul is downcast within me. Yet this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will wait for him. We remember the affliction, don't we? We remember the bitterness. 
Sometimes we are downcast, yet that doesn't have to be all that we remember. Because we can also remember the Lord's great love and his compassion and his faithfulness, which is renewed every single day. We can call it to mind and we must, remembering that even in the face of trial, we can have hope. Pray in all circumstances. Lift your head, remember and set again to pray expectantly, to pray with faith. And finally, pray with others. This is our verse for the week um, on the, the verse cards that we have. There's still a few at the back if you haven't got one yet. Verse 16, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The prayer of the righteous is powerful and effective. I don't know about you, but sometimes this verse can kind of put the fear into you a little bit. Like you're like, no thank you, I will happily keep all of the things that I do wrong to myself. Maybe I will include God, maybe, but no one else. That sounds terrifying. What this verse is highlighting is the importance of the collective nature of our faith. And if we were reading James chronologically, you would have got that vibe of communion, of togetherness already, because that is a theme that is throughout all of James's teaching across this book. Don't do this life of faith by yourself. Others are involved in the process, whether you know them or whether you don't. You may not always think it, but you do actually need each other and most importantly, we learn that we need each other intentionally. Maybe you're super holy and you and your pals just already seamlessly moved from watching like Love Island to praying together, but maybe not. For me, I need to be a little bit more intentional with that. I need to say, hey, we haven't prayed together in a while. Uh, could we meet up and do that? Or I need to send a text that says, I would like to pray for you this week. How can I be specific in that? how can I pray for you? Or I need to say in the middle of a conversation, this thing that we're talking about, that sounds kind of heavy. How is that affecting your faith? How is that affecting what you think about God? Can I pray for that with you? Does confess your sins to one another mean expose really personal things to people who haven't earned that trust? No, of course it doesn't. That's called something else. But it does mean talk about the true reality of your life, what is really going on, your faith, your habits, your weak points, with people that you trust and who will help you and who will pray with you and for you and who will hold you accountable. Be willing and humble enough to receive input from others and don't try to go it alone because it won't last long. It's why we have communities and they are beautifully flawed. It's why we meet together to pray across the month. It's why we come here on a Sunday. It's why we build friendship with one another. All of these touch points of togetherness. So the question here is, who knows you? Who knows you? Who knows the things that are really going on in your life? Who are you open with?
And how can you build in a new way or sustain those trusting and provoking relationships this year? There's lots to think about here. And there's maybe even some things to do. That's what James would want. But I want us to finish by actually having some time and some space to pray. So before the bands come up, we're going to take just about five minutes in this space. And it's not too long. Hopefully it's long enough, but not too long. And we're going to have some space to pray. That's going to look different for everybody. Maybe you want to go to the side of the room and find a little space by yourself on the floor, lie down, pray there. Maybe you want to sit in silence. Maybe you're beside a friend and you want to pray with them. Maybe you want someone else to pray with you. Our prayer team are going to be over there to my left and they would love to pray with you. Maybe you just want to write or or draw or just sit and breathe and be thankful for the breath in your lungs. There doesn't seem much point in having a whole sermon on prayer and then not actually praying, right? So let's do that. And then don't let that be the only time that you do it this week. Sarah Coakley is an American theologian and she says this about prayer, which I really love. Prayer is this constant return to the place where one's projects are frail and fallible and where one can only fall on God's mercy. That's the place God works and God works powerfully there. So I'm going to pray for us. Michael's going to put on some music. You've got a little bit of time. Do whatever you want. Please pray. And then the band will come and lead us in a few minutes. So Jesus, we, we welcome you and I ask that the things that were from just me and not important, will you take them away? But the things that were truly from your heart, would you place them deep within us and let us not be able to get away from them? And in whatever way is right for us tonight, let us fall once again on your mercy. We want to meet with you and we're choosing to do that right now in a very intentional way. Just as your disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray. Amen.